Hi, Filmatics. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have a very special guest. We have director Peter Skozipiak. Peter is a BAFTA-nominated director known for his feature films, Small Time Obsession, and The Last Witness, starring Alex Pettifer and Michael Gambon. Let's welcome Peter to the show today. Hi, Peter. Welcome. Hi, Marilyn. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm obviously clearly now an official film addict, so uh, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Our audience is just so excited to listen to you. Um, can you let everyone know where you are to uh, recording live with us today? Right, so I'm actually phoning you from Cardiff because I'm working on a BBC drama show called Casualty. It's a medical show. So I'm, uh, I'm in prep at the moment. I'll be filming in a couple of weeks. I am based, I'm a filmmaker based in London, so I was born and bred in London, and that's where I live. Oh, wonderful. So what's the weather like today in London? Uh, absolutely scorching. It's like It was like summer today. It was, I think, um, this day was kind of one of the hottest days since 1968, so suddenly it, it, was, it was like summer. But I think in a couple of days it's going to go back to winter again. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we're at the very end of March, March 30th, a pre-recording live. So it was one of the hottest days in London since you said 1960. That's 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 wild. Yeah, something wild. I mean, the, the weather at the moment is all over the place, as you know, everywhere. So it was a bit of a surprise. So, yeah, I was I was ready to go out in layers and it was just it was sunglasses and, you know, it was kind of sunglasses and shorts weather. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, wow. So you're in the middle of winter in London and then like and then all of a sudden <laughs> summer appears. It's like, hey, how are you? Yeah, I think we literally had no winter in L.A. this year. So, um, yeah. But um, so most importantly, we wanted to find out about your incredible directing career. You are just fantastic. And I want to start with uh, growing up as a kid. What was one of your favorite childhood films that you just loved? Um, I think I started off watching Westerns and sort of war films because my parents used to watch them. So I was watching it as, as a kid. I was always watching sort of John Wayne films and sort of films like The Great Escape. Um, and then I remember when I was seven years old, I went to a small cinema in Inverness in Scotland. It was one of those, we were on holiday there, we were camping, we were sort of living in a caravan, and the weather was just atrocious. And so there really wasn't anything to do. So my parents went, so we went to the cinema because they were they were kind of, they, they loved going to the cinema and loved films. That's kind of where I get it from. And we went to see Live and Let Die. So that was my first sort of James Bond film as well. And obviously on a very wet sort of Inverness afternoon, seeing a film like a, like Live and Let Die, James Bond film, colorful action, you know, to a seven-year-old, <laughs> you know, this was, this was an amazing experience. And it's one that kind of, I suppose, sort of kicked it off. That's one I always sort of go back to, because really, obviously, as a seven-year-old, I probably shouldn't have been watching it because it was too old for me. <laughs> but um, but that, that made a huge impression on me. And I'm still a big James Bond fan. Oh, yeah. James Bond is the best action and the lines shaken, not stirred and the beautiful costume and and, and beautiful women and just the charm and the grace and the, the evil villains. I, I want to ask you, did you have brothers, sisters? Did you play like spies and stuff after seeing James Bond? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but it was almost like you know, it's it's especially for boys, you know, it's it's a real kind of fantasy figure, and it and it, and it goes off into so into adult life as well, and it's kind of it just opens you up into into new worlds. I mean, the, the thing about James Bond films, especially when you're younger or you know when you don't travel as much, you're you're opened up and you're seeing worlds that. That uh, that you haven't got any experience of, and it's that globe trotting aspect to it that was always that was always so much fun. Uh, and on top of that, you know, the action obviously for for a kid, the action was fantastic. And so, not so much. My brothers and sisters were a lot older than me, so I didn't really play with them because my brothers eight years older than me, and my sisters twelve years older than me. So I was always the one sort of lagging at the end. I was I was always the annoying little brother. You know who uh, who came who came last. So kind of, I grew up on my own, sort of playing on my own. And what was interesting was I remember now is I used to always sit up, play with little with soldiers, with toy soldiers, and 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 set up sort of big scenes with you know with uh, making uh, hills out of pillows and covering them with blankets and setting up sort of forts or sort of or little towns and then having um, having sort of battles. Uh, all over the sort of the, all over my brother's sort of uh, floor or up in the attic, wherever I could find a space. And I remember a, there's a photograph I think of Steven Spielberg, um, sort of low, looking down at all these soldiers laid out on the floor with his kind of cap on. And I thought, there you go, I was doing that when I was a kid as well. Yeah, we were <laughs> so you know, yeah. I always remember that. We were story storyboarding with our little action figures and toy soldiers, our little dolls. We're storyboarding and actually making little movie scenes, you know, playing out there. Yeah. So that's wonderful. And so delightful that treasured memory that you went with your family to the cinema and probably on a hot day. I remember like the nice cold air conditioning, those nice plush seats and just so excited to have the theaters opening back up. And uh, many first dates on movies. People are like, oh, that could be my first date, you know, at the movie <laughs> theater. So, uh, so gonna- yeah, I mean, I still, get, I still get really excited about going to the cinema. I think it's one of those things. I, I think the day I, I don't get excited about going to the cinema, then, you know, something's got to be wrong or I've come to the end. Because <laughs> I still, that, that moment where you buy the ticket, you sit down, the lights go down and, and the curtains open. It's still as much of a thrill now as it was when I was a kid, and I don't think that will ever change. Yeah, really fun, especially, you know, when it's a big action film or special effects, and you're just like, wow, look at that, zoom, zoom. Like, I remember Back to the Future, they were flying, and just just so fun. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's an experience like no other, and so, you know, there's this, this ongoing debate about cinema and streaming, and, and t- I mean, there is room for everything. As I say, there's... The, at no point can one replace the other. You know, we've gone through this so many times that sort of TV will replace cinema, then DVD will replace cinema, now streaming will replace cinema. But the point is there's nothing like going to the cinema and sitting in a, in a darkened hall with, with total strangers and having a, uh, a, a mutual experience. However big your screen at home is, you know, however good your sound is, you're never going to have that moment of actually going out uh, and sitting in a room with total strangers and having a shared experience and you know it's it's it is magical and i think it'd be a shame if uh, if we lost it but i don't think we ever will because it will it will always go it will always go on i think so especially families that have kids you're like oh grand hey grandma can you take the kids out and go watch a fantastic animation film they're like 
the mom is like, I'm going to go get do my hair or go get pampered while you take the kids. There's always going to be someone that's like, oh, can you take the kids and go watch a movie? <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, yeah. so it's going to lead me to ask you, um, was there a favorite Criterion film that you that you just was a favorite movie of yours that you just might have inspired you to go into filmmaking? Um, when I was looking at the Criterion list, you know, there's some fantastic films in the in the collection. And but one that I landed on was The Long Good Friday because I was born and bred in London. So Bob Hoskins, The Long Good Friday, you know, again, I'm a young boy. Um, it's all locations that I was aware of. It was very much kind of, you know, a Londoner's film and it still is. And it, it's almost become a period piece now. But as a kind of young boy growing up and into films, again, that was a huge experience for me because when you're watching Westerns and American movies, that's one thing. That's a world you, you're kind of you're opened up to. But then when you see a sort of gritty London film that's kind of you know where it's been shot, it's always very exciting. So that was a huge influence on me um, later on and, and even now to hark back to the, the kind of films I like and, and uh, you know, the kind of films I wanted to make. And obviously the representation of where you live as well, because there's the one thing of the James Bond idea that you travel to places that you've never seen, but there's also something about, uh, you know, telling the stories that are outside your front door. And there's, there's, there's a, that's a different experience. <laughs> yeah. And um, so you grew up in London. What, what, uh, what city or street are you allowed to um, reveal? <laughs> I'm in. Uh, I'm a South Londoner, so I'm south of the river. river um, and there is a big difference between being born north of the river and south of the river. You know, don't tell me what it is, but we're all very kind of very, um, very protective of, of where um, where we were brought up in London. Everyone likes to kind of you know mark the fact that they're either a South Londoner, North Londoner, East Londoner, and they're very and and they are kind of different cultures and a different London. South London was a newer part of London, and it's more leafy. It's a bit more open. There's a lot more kind of um, uh, housing there, whereas North London is the older part of London. Obviously, the city of London is, is, is so much older. The East London are the docks. So there's different, there's always been different cultural sort of differences in and around London. But I'm very, I'm a very proud South Londoner. Uh, as I say, I was born in South London. Um, and because my parents are Polish as well, we also have an immigrant, I have an immigrant um, uh, influence as well. So they came to London after the war and uh, the Polish community is and was very strong in London. Oh, wonderful. And um, they have a similar thing in Italy. I, I don't know if you know, I was born in Italy, but they have the people from the north and the people from the south. And I, too, like you, am a southern a southerner in Italy. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, um, I don't know about you, but when I remember my mom's brother was driving us to Bologna, and they have these cute bread. It's like they look like little um, figure, like little uh, boy, like men figure bread. It's the shape of like a like a little stick figure. And I remember yeah. because our license plate said that we we're from the south. The police made all the people from the south drive around because we weren't from the north. And I said, "Why? Why are we going this way?" And he explained <laughs> that, like you know, that I guess the north and the south were kind of like you know different. So it's amazing how like. You know, hopefully that like, you know, even though everyone's different, we can all be respectful and kind to each other because respect and kindness is a two way street because people are different. And um, from the things they eat to the religion they practice to what they love and where they're born and people are different. So but at least, you know, 
I mean, that's one of the things I guess with new movies can highlight the beauty of people or spotlighting things that like um, that, that just make people be aware that we can, you know, all can kind of be kinder to each other, but it's a two way street. And um, but yeah, but just the differences of where you're born can make you go, well, I'm a northerner, I'm a southerner. And it's just the, our differences. But we do love finding and exploring um different cultures and going around the world, like you said, James Bond shows like Russia. I remember, oh, wow. And when they're skiing down the slopes, I didn't even know that that existed and the beautiful costumes. But it's it's really lovely when we can come together and enjoy each other's differences. And um, what a beautiful thing that filmmaking does. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, I, and it's one of those things that I, I suffered with as well because I was born in England, but my parents were Polish. And Poland was part of the uh, USSR, so the, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet bloc. You know, a lot of people in England when I was growing up didn't even know where Poland was or what Poland, what, that Poland was a country. So I felt very much a kind of outsider from that point of view. And um, because everything at home was Polish, but everything outside of home was English, you kind of did feel that cultural conflict of, well, what am I? Am I English or am I Polish? And I still get asked that question, you know, am I British or am I Polish? My blood is 100% Polish because both parents are, are Polish. But obviously I was brought, brought up in England in, in an English culture as well as a Polish one. So it's now that I agree with you that, yes, I'm very different, but in a good way because I can be Polish when I want to be, English when I want to be. And I also understand both cultures. So I'm, I'm richer for it rather than having to decide one or the other. I, I'm different, but different is good. Different yeah. is not bad. Yeah, different is good. I love it. And uh, perhaps you're a British. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, you know, it's, it's funny because I was drawn, you know, again, without knowing it, you know, I was drawn to films like The Godfather, you know, Mean Streets, Once Upon a Time in America. And obviously the, the, the common ground there is obviously immigrant communities, but in America, you know, the Italian-Americans, obviously there's a strong Polish-American uh, community in, in, uh, in America as well. So, you know, that was always there, even, even though I wasn't kind of aware of it. And as I say now, that's, that's what makes me different as a filmmaker as well. And that takes me back to, to what we were saying before in that, you know, what, it, what, it, what is it you're wanting to say as the filmmaker? And obviously I have a very unique and specific background and that is what you bring to your work overtly or, or or not overtly yeah and i think that's why people like certain directors and writers and and actors what they bring to the film um just their their backstory and um especially as a director you will um otherwise we'll get the same thing all the time like we'll just get like there's so many comic books that are being made into um films which is great and there's always the remake, sequel one through 10 or whatnot it is. But to have original content come out and beautiful stories, I think that people will always love original content and beautiful stories because, you know, we are different and we like to see some, you know, we like to see a variety of things. So thank goodness that we have Peter Stropiak to, to represent uh, his Polish heritage, his British heritage, his British <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which leads me to ask you, so um, was there like um, one or two favorite directors that you love? And could you um, share like some of your favorite film shots? Because we love learning about directing and and, and from a director's perspective, would love to, to hear, um, you know, 
how you would describe a, a scene in a film as a director? Yeah, I mean, the, the one I always keep going back to is a very simple shot, but it's obviously part of a sequence and it's something that really influenced me. It kind of, in that moment, I suddenly realized kind of the power of filmmaking. Uh, and it is from The Godfather, and, it, and it's a very well-known scene because it's the scene where Michael Corleone is in the Italian restaurant, and it's the moment just before he shoots the, the uh, Salozzo, the, the, the gangland boss um, who ordered his father to be, uh, to be shot, and the, and the uh, corrupt policeman. So that, the shot that I always remembered, even as a kid, before I even knew what directors did or, or so on, was... He comes back from the bathroom, he sits down, and the Salazzo starts talking to him in Italian, but you don't see Salazzo, you just hear him, and the, and the, and the camera just tracks in slowly on Michael as, as, as he's deciding what he's going to do. And then you also have the sound of the train that gets louder and louder and louder as the, as the shot tracks in on Michael, and then the train cuts out, he gets up and he shoots them both. <laughs> he walks out of the restaurant, the music kicks in, you know, and it's just, I mean, even just talking about it, it's just, I get emotional about it, it's just great. Um, you know, it's, it, from a filmmaking point of view, it, it, to me it uses all the tools, and now that I've directed for so long, you, you realise, you know, you, you want to use all the tools at your disposal, not just the actor, the lighting, you know, the movement of the camera, the sound, you know the music, the way they use the music in that in that scene, and also just visual storytelling. If I take, if you go back from that shot, you know the whole sequence up from when he gets up from the table, goes to the bathroom, and comes back. That's purely visual filmmaking, and just the way you see Al Pacino act it all out. You see the the worry when he can't find the gun, and then he finds it, and then he kind of got to settle himself. And now he comes back out into the restaurant, he sits down, and now, boom, what's he going to do? And I mean, it's just, I, I know what happens every time, and I'm still tense, I'm still on the edge of my seat um, as to what's going to happen. Maybe maybe you'll decide otherwise. So that's the strength of it. That's the power of, of a shot, the power of a sequence, and the power of kind of visual storytelling. Yeah, and uh, Scorsese, I mean, wow, just mind-blowing how he really, um, such a visual storyteller and so genius with the, um, the train, the sound getting louder and louder and tracking, um, you know, Michael Corleone while he's talking. And it's just so genius. And so many beautiful, amazing shots in that one film. That one film. Well, you know, I mean, and this was also, you know, I remember Francis Coppola at this point was a young director. And this is, this is like his first big chance. And, you know, you had the likes of Coppola and Scorsese and Spielberg, all young directors, you know, learning from, from Europe. And obviously we know, we know how, they, how they got their break. And, but just the, the talent there, the kind of the, the natural talent that they had. Yes, they, they looked at, they were all film buffs and they, and they knew their filmmaking. But to actually then apply that um, and create something new and original that has now stood the test of time and, and is a new classic, is just, is phenomenal. I mean, that was a, a phenomenal period of time, but just the natural talent of, of these of these directors at the time, which we're all, you know, I think every generation of directors will, will learn from, you know, uh, as, as you go on. It's just the, it's just the craft. It's that thing of watching craft right there and you can, you can analyze it, watch it and then try it out yourself. Oh yeah. And, um, yeah, that, that was Coppola. I think it said Sorskese because I also like 
Scorsese when he does his films as well, but that was Coppola. <laughs> I didn't want to confuse him. Yeah, but you're right, because I say, you know, it, when I was growing up, it was almost like they, they were all so visual. So I didn't even know what directors did at the time. So I, I, you know, I saw Mean Streets, I saw, you know, you saw Jaws, Close Encounters, um, The Godfather, all these films. And at that point, they were all films that I liked, but I didn't link them in any way. And it's only when you realize what, you know, what directing is that suddenly, well, actually, all these favorite films are by, by this director or they're all the same directors popping up or the same actors popping up. But it, it was very, it, the, the main thing was the, the same directors were popping up. So I had my list of favorite films and then I realized, well, actually, most of them are directed by either the same guy or this group of guys. Yeah. And that's what was fascinating after this. I came to it, you know, uh, later once I realized what directors actually do. Yeah, and and um, when you are uh, directing, do you, you weigh heavily on storyboards or do you do a combination of using the storyboards and then when you're actually in the physical environment, let it breathe its life as well? Yeah, when I, when I started directing, I was very precise. I would plan everything. I would do camera plans and, and, I, and in a way I was kind of forced to do it because TV kind of, that's what they ask you to do because you work in studio, you work on location. So it was a good discipline. I never storyboarded I, because I just can't draw. But then I realized Nork and Scorsese and, and the others, because you, whenever I saw storyboards, I thought, well, they look like comics. So I mean, I obviously can't draw as good as that. This is before I realized you actually have storyboard artists do it for you. Um, so yeah, I used to do sort of stick figures um, for myself, but it's very time consuming. I kind of, I, I planned a lot. So I, I would plan camera shots, but then I wanted to kind of be there in the, on the day and see everything together. And I still do that now. I plan as much as I can, but I leave the final kind of decision to when I'm on the floor. Because you're right, when you see the actors there, how they're going to play it, you see them, you know, in the location or in the studio, then those shots kind of appear as well. You'll see things that you may not have imagined. So I kind of want to leave that final decision as to which shots uh, we actually shoot till the last minute, absolutely. And, and that comes with experience as well, because when I started, I was a little bit more insecure and I wanted to uh, try certain shots. So I would maybe sometimes try and force the narrative into what I wanted to do, whereas now I'm much looser because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of confident that if I get the blocking right and the performance is there, you know, I'm, I, the, the shots will find themselves, really. Yeah, and are there like a standard shot list that you like the basis that you can kind of just share with the new um, the new filmmakers that you start with, like you know the establishing shot, the the close up, the medium, the wide shots. Is there a standard kind of thing that you need on each each different scene? Yeah, it's funny. I I, I don't really have a standard, and it's suddenly uh, if I have a style. The style is that I don't have a style. <laughs> um, and it's, I think every director will say the same thing. They never think they do have a style. It's always someone else will, will observe their work and say, oh, you use a lot of tracking shots or you use a lot of handheld or you don't move the camera a lot. You know, I tend to, how I started was what I liked was I would just approach every scene and think what is the best way to shoot that scene. If the best way to shoot that scene is in one shot, then I would do that. But if the next scene, I felt that the next scene should be really fast cut and handheld, I would just do that. So I wouldn't kind of think, well, oh, I did that one in one shot, so maybe I should do this one in one shot as well. If it didn't suit it, I would shoot it in another style. 
Now, the danger of that is that when you get into the, into the cutting room, the whole thing just looks a mess because, you know, there is no continuity in style, if you like. But what I found was is that if I've made the right choice for that scene, if I've shot it the way, um, you know, that works, um, the whole thing works. And no one really notices because I think the main thing is, as a director, is you've got all these tools that you're using, the brain sizes, the lenses, you know, the lighting and so on, the costume, you know, the sound. But it's all meant to be invisible. You're not actually, if someone comes out of one of my films and says, you know, that was really well shot, I'm kind of worried because what they mean is it probably wasn't very good, <laughs> but they liked the way it was shot. To me, they should come out and say, that was a good film. That made me laugh. That made me cry made me want to know what, what happens next. I think that's the job of the director. And if then afterwards they then say, oh, and it was well shot. Oh, and actually the music was wonderful. But it's a second. It shouldn't be the thing up front. So it's that thing of not wanting to show off as a director, but also wanting to be visually interesting. So a long answer to a short question. I have my tool, I have my kind of toolbox, and in there you've got wide shots, you've got tracking shots, you've got handheld, you've got extreme close-ups, you know, um, and you pull out the things that you think suit that scene. So, and having watched lots of films, you know, you, you know, classic films, and you watch how people do scenes in one shot. You see how directors uh, do things when they're fast-cut and handheld, you know, and you're just learning from you know the thousands of films that have come before and the good directors so it's hard, it's a hard question to answer is what i'm saying because every director also has to find their own way because what works for me doesn't mean that will work for a novice director and in a in a way what i did is kind of what i read scorsese de palma you know coppola did was they would watch other films <laughs> and nick from those films and create their own style as a result. Because obviously, famously, Brian De Palma would, was a Hitchcock fan, and he would just, you know, almost wholeheartedly nick sequences from Hitchcock and do it his, in his own way. And I don't think that's a bad thing because you're, you, I think all artists are constantly taking what what came before and then moving it forward. So that's kind of how I see myself, really. Yeah, and I was gonna. I want to ask you. Um, we're gonna do two parts, but like, um, so I, I'm just gonna give you a heads up. We're gonna come back for part two with Peter Strozziak. But I want to ask you, Peter, um, how has drones affected your filmmaking? Are you using a lot of drones right now? Yeah, I literally had uh, been on location today, and we were discussing drones. And uh, yeah, they're just another kind of tool in the box. Um, but again, I would not. For instance, because drones are being used, I will do everything I can to use drones. It's there. I know what it can do. I've seen a lot of good shots with drones. But again, if it suits what I'm trying to do, then I'll use it. But I'll also not use it because, you know, there's a lot of films that overuse drones. Your classic thing of something comes out and everybody's using Steadicam or everybody's using a drone and everyone gets a bit sick of it. And you know a drone shot when you see one. <laughs> but they're there kind of almost to show off but they're not there to actually tell the story. Yeah, like sometimes when I see a beautiful, um, a, a like a car's driving on like a windy road and and you can just see it from above there and you see the locations and the cliffs and like there was a, a, a van driving along the coast of California Highway 
And it was so pleasant to just watch it drive along the cliffs and you could see the water and the ocean, which was really stunning. So yeah, some scenes, like you said, you got to pick and choose um, your toolbox, your tools and your, your and your toolkit, right? So, um, but yeah, and and that's what what it, what drones have done for us as filmmakers is obviously given us the helicopter shot. You know, it's obviously a lot cheaper to hire a drone than it was before to hire a helicopter and and do those shots. So you can do those very kind of expensive looking um, uh, driving shots, establishing shots now very easily, and you know that that's that's great. That's great for everybody because, as you say, you can then see so much more, and you put so much more on the on the on the screen, and just create that world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's very interesting that um, it say drones save money, like you said, with the expensive helicopters, so it reduces the budget, and then also like from going from film to digital, also saves on the budget. So um, there's a lot more um, people able to get into the business of filmmaking, and um, so we're uh, so I want to just um let just. Maybe we'll end right here. And um, everyone, um, please tune back for part two with Peter Strozyak, Stro Strozpiak. Uh Peter, can you say it correctly so that like everyone knows how to say it um, correctly? Skopiak. <laughs> Skopiak. 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 Yeah. So he says it so much better than me. So um, join us for part two with Peter Skopiak. And we'll be right back. Thanks for listening for part one. And come right back for part two. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And see you. See you for part two.